Shall we pray? Almighty God and Father, who in the beginning declared, let there be light, and there was light, we now pray that the light of your word would shine in the darkness of our hearts. For by nature, Lord, we cannot see or know or believe the wonders of your love in Jesus Christ. But by your Spirit's presence and power, you are able to overcome the forces that oppose, the distractions that keep us from hearing the good news of the gospel, and the selfishness, Lord, that prevents us from resting in your sovereign grace. Make us to know the wonders of your love that we might leave this place confirmed in our faith or committed to living by faith. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 1 Samuel 11 is our scripture reading. 1 Samuel 11. It's page 275, 275 in your pew Bible. You'll remember that we have of late been seeing the election, the the choosing of Saul as king. It began already in chapter 7, or sorry, sorry, chapter 8, where Israel demanded a king against the word and advice of the Lord through his servant Samuel. Yet the Lord also provided them a king. You'll remember that he provided Saul. And Saul was most recently then anointed. You'll remember he was in the, among the baggage. They had to go find him. Uh, and then he was proclaimed king. At the end of that event, there were some, some worthless fellows, we're told, who said, how can this man save us? And they despised him and brought him no present. And that will come to significance at the end of this chapter. So 1 Samuel 11, let's listen to God's word. Then Nahash the Ammonite went up and besieged Jabesh-Gilead, and all the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, Make a treaty with us, and we will serve you. But Nahash the Ammonite said to them, On this condition I will make a treaty with you, that I gouge out all your right eyes, and thus bring disgrace on all Israel. The elders of Jabesh said to him, Give us seven days' respite, that we may send messengers through all the territory of Israel. Then if there is no one to save us, we will give ourselves up to you. When the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul, they reported the matter in the ears of the people, and all the people wept aloud. Now behold, Saul was coming from the field behind the oxen. And Saul said, What is wrong with the people that they are weeping? So they told him the news of the men of Jabesh. And the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul when he heard these words, and his anger was greatly kindled. He took a yoke of oxen and cut them in pieces and sent them throughout all the territory of Israel by the hand of the messengers, saying, Whoever does not come out after Saul and after Samuel, so shall it be done to his oxen. And the dread of the Lord fell upon the people, and they came out as one man. When he mustered them at Bezek, the people of Israel were 300,000, and the men of Judah 30,000. And they said to the messengers who had come, Thus shall you say to the men of Jabesh-Gilead, Tomorrow by the time the sun is hot, you shall have salvation. When the messengers came and told the men of Jabesh, they were glad. Therefore the men of Jabesh said, Tomorrow we will give ourselves up to you, that you may do to us whatever seems good to you. And the next day Saul put the people in three companies, and they came into the midst of the camp in the morning, watch, and struck down the Ammonites until the heat of the day. And those who, were sur- who survived were scattered so that not two of them were left together. 
Then the people said to Samuel, Who is it that said, Shall Saul reign over us? Bring the men that we may put them to death. But Saul said, Not a man shall be put to death this day, for today the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. And Samuel said to the people, Come, let us go to Gilgal and there renew the kingdom. So all the people went to Gilgal and there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. There they sacrificed peace offerings before the Lord and there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. It's for the reading of God's holy word. Brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, our Lord, we know that we live in a world that is broken in many respects, that is cursed, as we understand from the Word of God, because of the fall of man into sin. And as a result, there is this patina, this dust that lies on everything, so that everything is a little bit broken, everything is a little bit painful, everything is not the way it should be. But there are sometimes moments in our lives, in our experiences of this life, when we get to see the wonder of life almost as it should be, where It's like the curtain of this world is drawn back and we see what could have been or what is apart from sin. Maybe it's the day we hold a newborn child in our arms. Maybe it's sitting on the back porch with a loved one watching a remarkable sunset. There are all sorts of ways in which we can experience this wonder and beauty of our world where we can sit back and say, isn't life great? Isn't God good? Isn't His love amazing? Well, this is a chapter like that. There's a lot that's wrong before it and after it. Before it, we've already seen that Israel rebelled when they chose Saul. They followed their own heart's desire. They didn't follow the word and will of God. We met Saul, and he's not much of a guy He's not much of a king. There's already evidence that his reign and rule is going to be disastrous. And in chapter 12, we're going to hear Samuel's farewell address. And then in chapter 13, the trouble's going to start. So that there's very little time for Saul to be good. There's very little time for him to be a blessing. But there is this one moment. There is this one pulling back of the curtain. There is this one event in Saul's ministry where you go, wow, God is good. If, if that's what kingship were like, if that's who Saul's going to be, if that's how he's going to reign and rule, life is going to be amazing. God is going to bless us so remarkably. There is this moment where you can suddenly see the blessedness of a king in Israel. And that's chapter 11. In the midst of all of the darkness comes this moment of light. A moment that comes about because of Nahash the Ammonite. He besieges, we're told, Jabesh-Gilead. Jabesh-Gilead, if you remember your geography of the land of Canaan, is on the east side of the Jordan River. So most of Israel, you remember, is between the Jordan River and the Mediterranean. But when Israel came to occupy the land, you'll remember that Ephraim and 
Some of the tribes stayed on the east side of the Jordan. The land there was good, and so they populated it on the condition that their men had to fight until the land was conquered. Well, Jabesh Gilead's one of those cities on the east side of the Jordan. And Nahash comes and besieges it, an Ammonite king who's flexing his muscle. You know, of course, that the Ammonites are the cousins of the Israelites. The Ammonites are the sons of Lot, the nephew of Abram, so they're family. But they are a family that do not like the Israelites, never have. They war against them constantly. And they've warred against them during the time of the judges. And now again, you remember Ehud and Eglon. That is a particular memorable battle with the Ammonites. But now also with Nahash, this king who wants to demonstrate his power. And the people of Jabesh-Gilead, rather surprisingly, say to Nahash, we'll make a treaty with you in order to serve you. Covenant with us. Agree to terms. We don't need to go to war. Nobody needs to die today, Nahash. We'll just become your servants. No big deal. Just agree not to kill us. And Nahash says, oh, that's fine. That's a good idea. But here's the deal. I'm going to gouge out one of your eyes. That it might be a, a, a disgrace on all of Israel. Now, the, the idea of gouging out an eye is quite simple. It, it's uh, in, ensured that the people of Jabesh Gilead could farm. You can farm with one eye. You can't farm with two, but you can farm with one. You can continue to produce crops. You can continue to produce animals. You continue to pay whatever it is that Nahash insists on. But what you can't do with one eye is fight. Depth perception is lost, and so arrows do not always go the way you want them to. Weapons are not always so easy to use because you cannot see properly. So it was rather brilliant on Nahash's part. He would prevent them from warring against him, but he would keep them producing for him. And when he says it will be a disgrace on all Israel, that's when you might say he goes a little too far. He's right, of course. It will be a disgrace upon Israel. It'll be a disgrace upon Israel because nobody's there to save Jabesh Gilead. It'll be a disgrace because these people capitulated so very quickly to his demands. It'll be a disgrace because this is the chosen people of God come to live within the land of promise under the kingship of their Lord who have been called to exercise dominion. This is the paradise of God. This is the place flowing with milk and honey. This is where God's people were to guard and advance the kingdom. And rather than doing that, they would be under Nahash's thumb. It would be a disgrace to the people of God. It would be a disgrace to the Lord who had delivered them and brought them to this place. Well, that gives the uh, people of Jabesh Gilead pause, and they say, give us seven days, and they send out word, not to Saul. That's intriguing. They don't right away go to Saul, who's been anointed king, and say, hey, Saul, would you save us? They send word to all of the tribes of Israel, and they say to everybody, is there anyone who will deliver us? And of course, Saul hears about it, and we know how the story goes. And it's a very familiar story. It's certainly one that was common in those days, in the days of warring tribes and nations. It's a very common story for a king to exercise his dominion and say, I'm going to build up my kingdom by capturing land and peoples. I'm going to make this city my own. It's a very 
common story, and it's very common because it is the story of this fallen world. That's not immediately evident maybe to us, but it is there in the text. The story is told in such a way as to give to us patterns or to give to us familiar revelations so that we go, oh, I know what's going on here. I I know that this is more than a military campaign. I know that this is more than a political matter. I know what's going on in this story. This is the story of this fallen world, of the enmity of which God spoke in Genesis 3.15. You remember to whom God spoke that promise? I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will bruise his heel. To whom did God speak that again? Oh yeah, that's right. He spoke it to the serpent. Do you know what Nahash means? The name means snake. A snake comes against the people of God. You go, already, wait a minute, I know what's happening here. And then notice that the people of Jabesh-Gilead, whether they realized it or not, said, give us seven days respite that we may send messengers through all the territory of Israel. And if there is no one to save us, if there is no one to save us, actually that word is used three times in this chapter, save us. That word is used again in verse 9. Tomorrow by the time the sun is hot there, you will have salvation. And then again in verse 13, Not a man shall be put to death this day, for today the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. And that word salvation, obviously it's rich with meaning and rich with significance from the perspective of God's word. It's even richer when you remember that the Hebrew word that's behind our English word is the word Yeshua. So that if we wanted to be a little bit creative and use our imaginations, we might say this, that the elders of Jabesh-Gilead said to Nahash, the snake, give us seven days respite that we may send messengers through all the territory of Israel. And if there is no Joshua, we will serve you. If there is no Joshua, if there is no Jesus, we will serve you. And that that is something that we need to recognize and appreciate and reflect on Because here again is represented the reality of life. Here on this page is a a common story, a familiar story, but a story that is deeply ingrained into the very fabric of our world. Because you will find yourself, if you have not already in this life, in exactly this place with the snake against you. And your ability to defeat him, helpless and hopeless. We do not battle against flesh and blood, people of God, but against principalities and powers of this spiritual world. Whether it is in the context of our health, whether it is in the context of our relationships, whether it is the politics and the culture in which we live, whether it is in personal struggles with sin, whether it is in the reality of death, all of us are going to face an enemy that is, like Nahash, greater than we can overcome. And we will find ourselves then crying out for mercy. Is there no Jesus? Is there no Joshua to save us? Or at least we ought to find ourselves there. Too quickly we believe that our ability is sufficient. Let's be honest about that as well. Jabesh Gilead says, let's send out word to all of the nation. We'll see if we can't get ourselves delivered. They don't 
Come right to the king and stand at his feet and say, Saul, deliver us. You've been appointed to God by God for this purpose. Come save us from our enemies. They cast their net wide, just like we do. Just like we do when we think that it is doctors and nurses as much as we love them that are the ones who save us. Just as we do when we think it's politicians, the right political party in power is going to save us. Just like we do when we think it's the right financial advisor It's the right diet. It's the right supplements. It's the right this, that, or the next thing. If you parent well, your children will be fine. If you work hard, you will succeed. We have this ingrained in our ideas and in our thoughts that we are able, significant, and substantive enough to overcome the challenges of this life. We are independent, self-reliant, successful people. We know how to deal with with the problems of life. People that don't succeed are just lazy, are thoughtless, foolish, are not like us. Let's not deny that spirit exists within our hearts and in our minds. Parenting, church programs, personal wisdom are for us too often our first reliance, our first place to go. We will find ourselves, if we have not already, one day, certainly on the very last day of our lives, facing an enemy that mocks us. That says, I'm going to win. There's nothing you can do. I am going to overcome. You are going to die, and I am going to capture you. And then what will we do? And what will we say? Will we even know at that point? Will we even realize at that point that there is a Jesus, a Joshua, who has come to deliver us? So many people today face the challenges of this life, face the ultimate challenge of death, not knowing that they can cry out to Jesus. Too often we find find ourselves in our struggles in the marriage, in our struggles in business, in our struggles in relationship and in health, not realizing that we have a great physician, that we have a great king. So it's a wonderful thing to read how the Lord then uses Saul to demonstrate that very thing. The people of Jabesh Gilead are at their wit's end. They are hopeless and helpless, and they send out word, will someone please save us? And now behold, we're told. It's a lovely Hebrewism, behold. You hear what's happening? Well, let me just show you something. Saul was coming in from the field behind the oxen. Saul has just been anointed king, but there hasn't really been enough time for Saul to set up the structures of government. He hasn't been able to build his palace and fill it with armed forces and all the rest. He's still working for dad. And he's out in the field with his oxen and he doesn't know what's going on, but he hears the people weeping and he asks what's going on and he's told about Jabesh Gilead and the eye business and all the rest. And then here is the very heart of the story. Here is the central thought. Here is the thing that the writer and the way that he structures the story wants us to see. Verse 6 is actually, not literally, but uh, literarily the very heart of this story. For it says, And the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul when he heard these words, and his anger was kindled greatly. The Spirit of the Lord. 
the Spirit of the Lord who had anointed Saul for the purpose of being king. Again, we are to keep in mind here that the ministry of the Spirit here is for the work of kingship. It is not the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit that he gives to every believer. This is not Pentecost Sunday come early. This is something different. This is the equipping of the Holy Spirit for the purpose of fulfilling the office of king. And now the Spirit of the Lord rushes, we're told. Not a lovely way to describe the work of the Holy Spirit. Rushes upon Saul so that Saul is swept up in the power of the Holy Spirit in the greatness of his presence and his anger, we're told, was kindled. What a wonderful thing to hear if you are the people of Jabesh-Gilead about to suffer under the hand and the cruel oppression of the snake. You hear that your Redeemer is enraged is enraged at what you're experiencing, at what it is that's being done to you, the injustice, the oppression, the suffering that you are experiencing. We forget that sometimes. We forget that sometimes in our experience of this life. Sometimes because of the whispers, because of the lies of the serpent, we begin to wonder if God is in fact against us. We begin to wonder if He has forgotten us in our moments of trial and tribulation. You can say, where is the Lord now? Where is my God now? We forget Jesus. At the tomb of Lazarus, as He comes to that place of death, we're told in the language of John's Gospel that Jesus was enraged. The language is taken actually from the battlefield, from that snorting of a war horse. You know those horses that are enormous and who trample lives under their hooves, who rush through the crowd with their great power. That is the rage that Jesus expresses at the tomb of Lazarus because our God is a God of deliverance of caring for His people, of faithfulness to His covenant church. Our God is a God of justice. He delivers the oppressed. He lifts the bowed down. He blesses the weak. The devil wants us to think that our God is anything but. Our world wants us to believe that our God is anything but Our world wants us to believe that oppression is in fact the consequence of the church and of religion. It wants us to think that in the end, we are the reason why people suffer. But our God is the God of the the widow and of the orphan. Our God is the God who says, well done, good and faithful servant, For when I was hungry, you fed me. When I was thirsty, you gave me drink. When when did we do these things, Lord? For you did it to the least of these. The impoverished, the broken, the weary. Those are the people whom God calls to come to me. All you who are burdened and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He is the God who delivers the weak and the broken and the sorrowful and the struggling. Some of us are here today in that very place. Be encouraged to read that the Spirit of the Lord came upon Saul, the prototype of the coming Messiah. Be encouraged to hear that Saul's anger was greatly kindled, for this is your Savior 
come to deliver you. Know that in your struggles, know that in your sorrow, that you are not forgotten, but that you will be delivered in his time and in his way. Indeed, Saul takes some oaks, uh, sorry, a yoke of oxen and cuts them in pieces and sends them throughout all the territory of Israel by the hand of the messengers, saying, whoever does not come out after Saul and Samuel, so shall it be done to his oxen. It's such a lovely sort of judge's moment. Saul grabs what's close at hand, these oxen that he's just been using. He, you might say he puts behind him his farming now. He, he no longer has time. He doesn't need these oxen anymore because he doesn't have time for work. Dad, I'm sorry, but these oxen now need to be in service to the kingdom. And off they go, each piece with a messenger. If you do not come and answer Saul's call, if you do not come to the king, who calls you to join in his war, if you do not surrender your life and volunteer your time, then you will be under judgment. The nation hears the call. He musters them at Bezek and 300,000 Israelites and 30 men of Judah come to do war with Jabesh-Gilead, or for Jabesh-Gilead, Nahash the Ammonite, who again is on the east side of the Jordan, has no idea what about is about to fall upon his head. The storm that is brewing, that is about to crash upon him. He sits there comfortably in his tent, drinking his wine, laughing with his generals about how soon enough the time will be up and they will be masters of this town. And the wrath gathering upon the horizon, rushes towards him in his complacency. Isn't that the wonder of our King? Isn't that the joy of the church in moments like these? Moments of darkness, undoubtedly. Moments of experiencing the brokenness of this world. Let's not deny or misunderstand that Jabesh-Gilead circumstance Nahash's opposition is in many respects the consequence of the Israelites. That all of this is part of that story of the Israelites coming from Egypt into the land of Canaan, having to defeat all of their enemies and having to establish, guard and guide the garden of the Lord for the worship of God and praise of His name. That's why Israel was delivered out of Egypt so that they could live in Canaan, in the promised land, that they could create this paradise upon the earth that the nations might see and wonder at who God is. And you remember how the Israelites did at that job. Not very well. The book of Judges is the reminder of that, isn't it? The book of Judges reminds us of just how badly things go. In fact, the last time we saw cattle cut up and sent around Israel was at the end of the book of Judges when terrible, disgusting, disturbing, and dark things were happening. Here, light shines. Here, Deliverance comes. Israel is suffering, and suffering because of her own foolish choices, failure to be faithful, her own brokenness. And yet God doesn't say to His people, you chose the mess, enjoy it, I'm not not helping you. 
Lord doesn't look at His children in their foolishness and say to them, you didn't want me before, you don't get me now. Oh no, He comes in His might with His armies gathered. He comes with His mighty forces. The Lord of hosts is His name. With His mighty army, He descends upon Jabesh-Gilead to deliver His people so that they might feel the wonder of His grace, that they might know the power of His love, that they might know again His faithfulness towards them. We will experience that undoubtedly in the course of our lives. Never be surprised at suffering, but be amazed at God's faithfulness. Always celebrate the wonderful ways in which the Lord delivers us. The wonderful ways in which His saving work in Jesus Christ is ours by the power of His Spirit through doctors and nurses, through blessings upon blessings, through good weather in our fields and on our land, through all of the many ways in which He bestows His faithfulness upon us. Never fail to see. I mean, on the one hand, this is a very ordinary story, isn't it? One little nation, one little king decides he's got, going to prove his, his, his manhood and a mighty nation is awoken. The beast is brought to life. You could have said, Nahash, what are you doing? There's at least 330,000 Israelites that can come and kill you. Are you a fool? You've picked a fight with an enemy much larger than you. We could explain away this entire event politically and militarily with no reference to God. But we see behind the curtain here. We see what the Lord is doing here. We see the truth. And the truth is it's the Lord at work. It is His might that is displayed. Indeed, we see what Israel had forgotten. Remember, Israel wanted a king All of this is in the context of Israel's wanting a king, just like the nations. Nahash is a king just like the nations. But what Israel needed was a king like this, upon whom the Spirit of God had descended and whose rage would bring deliverance over the greatest of enemies. Nahash was a little enemy. The church needs an, a, a king that can deliver her from the greatest of enemies, from her own sin, our own addictions, our own foolish choices, whether it is in drugs and drink or pornography, whether it's in our greed, it's in our selfishness, whether it's in our foolish ideals and plans and purposes. There is so much that we do wrong that we need to be delivered from. Praise the Lord, we have the greater King, Jesus Christ. For the Lord has not given to us what we desire, but has given to us what we need. He brings us to worship today to remind us of what He's done, to give us reason to praise Him again, to be worshiping Him on this day of rest and in this week that we are called to give to Him. Indeed, that's how the text ends. That's how the story concludes. The Ammonites are defeated until not two of them were left together. And then you have this business of those people who weren't so keen on Saul's kingship. Where are those men who said, shall Saul reign over us? Bring them that we may put them to death. 
This is what kings do, right? This is how kings establish their thrones. If you read any of the history of the world and you read about how when one king dies, then there's a bit of a battle for the throne and this son or that son or this person or that person finally wins the throne. And what's the first thing they do is they kill all of their brothers. They kill all of the people that oppose them. They establish their throne in blood. Well, this is what a king who's of the world would do. This is what indeed we would expect of someone like Saul. But then Saul says this, Not a man shall be put to death this day, for today the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. And then Samuel said to the people, Come, let us go to Gilgal, and there renew the kingdom. So they all went to Gilgal, and there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. There they sacrificed peace offerings before the Lord, and there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. Israel descends into the way of the world, but their king drags them out of it. Their king says, no, that is, this is the church of Jesus Christ. That's not how we do things. We don't exercise our judgment. We don't condemn those that opposed us. We cover sins with love. We show grace and mercy. This is a place where enemies are reconciled. This is a place where the opposing forces are united in their worship of God. This is not a place where you get to put people down and make them suffer. This is a place where you get to lift them up and say, join with me in thanking the Lord for what He's done for you and what He's done for me. Not a man shall be put to death this day, for today the Lord has worked salvation for Israel. We see again the glory of our God and acknowledge the Lord and His grace. That's that's what Israel was called to do on this day. That's what renewing the kingdom meant. They were all again on side. They were all together again. That's why it says again that Saul was anointed or was uh, elected as king, was appointed as king. You say, wait a second, wasn't he already appointed as king? Yes, he was already appointed as king. But then there was a bit of dissension. Now there is no dissension. Now the nation comes as a whole and says, okay, this is our guy. This is the one the Lord has chosen. This is the one that we need. And that was what Israel was to do. That was the right response to what Israel had experienced. The Lord had delivered them. Let's put aside our differences. Let's put aside our petty disputes. And let's now take up the praise of God together. That's what the people of God were to do. That's what we are to do too. Indeed, that's how we're to respond to this revelation of a king, to this revelation of this king, of the greater king, Jesus Christ, of the Joshua promised in this passage and given us in his Son. This is why we come together next Lord's Day to celebrate the Lord's Supper. That's that's what that is. That's a renewal ceremony. A covenant renewal ceremony. Where again we say, I'm a sinner, unworthy of this grace, but you are my Savior, and I give my life to you gladly, promptly. Where we give ourselves in thanksgiving to the Lord for His grace towards us in Jesus Christ. That's, in fact, what we do not only when we have Lord's Supper, that's what we do every Sunday. Every Sunday is a renewal ceremony. Every Sunday is an opportunity for the church to come again and to hear again 
of what the Lord has done. Maybe we've come here with our divisions and our disagreements. Maybe we also want to say, where are those people that disagreed with us? Where are those people that we want to punish for what they've done? I don't like that person. I don't agree with that individual. But when we walk into this place, we come to renew our covenant with the Lord. Here we come to put down our petty disputes. Here we come to see the Savior and to say, I give my life to Him. I give my life in response to His grace for me. I give my life to Him. That's what the Lord's Day is about. It's about our hearing again the wonder of God's grace towards us in Jesus Christ and responding in gratitude and in grace and mercy. It's about forgiveness. It's about kindness and love it's about embracing enemies and praising God together as friends this is what every Lord's Day should be like it's not it's not not always anyway in fact this story of first Samuel 11 which is this beautiful story this amazing story of exactly what we need of the powerful insertion of God's grace into a life that is lost so that it might be saved, it's a fleeting moment. Samuel will address his people. He's got some pretty strong words to speak to them. And then in chapter 13, the downhill slope begins. And it doesn't get a whole lot better for a lot of chapters. Until we meet David and Goliath and the rest. There are in this life a lot of struggles and sorrows. There is this patina that sits, this dust. This Life is hard. We experience that in a lot of ways. And then we come to church. And then we have this moment where the curtain just gets pulled back for a moment. And we get to see Jesus. And we go, yes. Yes. That's why I've come. That's who I worship. That's what I need in the midst of all of my struggle. And we go again into the curse, into the brokenness, into the battle. Because we have been equipped and enabled by Jesus Christ, our great King. And we commit ourselves to Him. Let's do that in prayer. Shall we pray? Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank You for this glorious revelation of Your King, not of Saul, who was the prototype, but of Jesus Christ, the great Joshua that You promised. The men of Jabesh-Gilead sought a Joshua, and You sent him. You sent him to us as well. Lord, may we be willing to admit our hopelessness and helplessness in the face of our enemies We want to think that we can overcome our enemies, that our parenting is enough to overcome the sin of our children's hearts, that our church programs are enough to overcome the sin of our members' hearts, that our self-righteousness is enough to overcome our great enemy, death. Indeed, how often, Lord, at funerals don't we hear the eulogies of the dearly departed recording for us how successful they were when they ought to have said, for today the Lord has worked salvation for Israel. Lord, may your saving work in Jesus Christ be our encouragement again today 
for those that are particularly here with grief upon their hearts, with the burdens and sorrows of this life and the scars of a bruising world, may they rejoice to know that your Spirit has descended upon Jesus Christ at His baptism and that He is our passionate Savior. He will fight against our enemies. And may we, O Heavenly God and Father, be patient. May we wait upon his saving work, but knowing this, that it is coming. And like the clouds upon the horizon descend and bring the rain, so too the army of our Savior encamps around those who fear Him. May that encourage us, O Lord. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.